I got to read all the nun books. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Now, today's topic is a little bit niche. It is a special interest of mine, but it might not be for everyone. Well, you're going to be talking about nuns and other clergy members. I love reading and learning about nuns, and there is plenty to learn because nuns had existed for a very long time, and they also exist in many different religions. Now, my favorite tropes are the more wholesome, funny tropes, ones where you kind of take something, add nuns, and humor ensues. My favorite hay drama is actually about a nun who, for some reason, has to be in a K-pop band. But in order to do that, she needs to dress up like a boy. And of course, they all fall in love with her. I also love just the straight up the historical nun. I like learning about the day-to-day lives, the prayers, the meager meals, the relationships built between sisters, and the politics of the day. I also like learning about contemporary nuns because you have all of that interesting day-to-day stuff that is then juxtaposed against modern day issues. A trope I am not so into is the horror nun. Too spooky for me. Now, of course, nuns are also going to come up in books about Catholic schools and about residential schools. For me, I really like to read about the more positive tropes, the sort of wholesome, happy ones. But there is definitely a whole darker side to nuns. I just want to acknowledge that not everyone may feel the same way that I do and may not see clergy members in the same light that I do. And that is okay. And feel free to tune out if this is not your topic. Now, I feel like for me, uh, my interest in nuns is connected to some key fictional characters. For instance, I love Maria from The Sound of Music, who's actually a failed nun because she was just too bubbly to stay cloistered. I also like Friar Tuck from Robin Hood and particularly Prior Philip from The Pillars of the Earth. Pretty much if there is a clergy character, I'm going to gravitate towards that character. Without further ado, I cannot wait to hear what all of my book friends have brought today. I know I've challenged you a little bit, and I appreciate you coming here with a new book for me to add to my to-be-read list. All right, so let's move on to Kareen. I'm very excited to hear about your your nun murder mystery. So I didn't I didn't exactly choose nuns, although the series does have nuns in it, but I chose to go with kind of a medieval theme because medieval clergy is a weird sub-interest of mine, especially like the different schools of being a member of the clergy. But I'm going to take us back. I'm going to take us way back to the year 1135. 
We are in England. And King Henry I has a tenuous grasp on the throne. All of his hopes of his legacy rest upon his son, William, who is taking a little boat from Normandy to England when there is a terrible storm. There is thunder, lightning, great waves, and soon his ship, the White Rose, perishes down to the depths of the channel, with it taking any hope of England's future and a smooth transition of peace from the crown from one hand to another. Upon the White Rose, William is dead, leaving England without a leader. That's not to say King Henry doesn't have some ideas. He would very much like his daughter, Empress Maud, which I have to admit is the greatest name of all time. And did I dress up as her for Halloween one year? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Empress Maud is Henry's chosen. However, he can only kind of convince half of the nobles to back her due to the whole lady thing. And in this kind of maelstrom of confusion, um, Henry's nephew upon his death, Stephen of Blois, and yeah, maybe I'm taking some sides on this. Uh, Stephen of Blois seizes the throne, plunging England into a tumultuous 20 years that was coined as the anarchy. Not only was a brutal civil war raging, but there were English barons who were openly snubbing the crown. There were Scottish invaders, rebellious Welsh leaders. The entire country was in a maelstrom. In fact, chronicles of the time refer to this period as when Christ and his saints slept, meaning that even God himself turned a blind eye to what was happening in England during this time. Set in this very particular time period in English history is a series of mysteries which are near and dear to my heart. They center around a Benedictine monk who lives in the Abbey Church of St. Peter and Paul in Shrewsbury in the county of Shrewsbury. Now, our brother Cadfile is not your average monk. He had a life before he took to the cloth. He went on crusades, fell in love, became a sailor, kind of learned how to do things with herbs that were kind of fun, was a man at arms, was a knight. He has lived a full entire life before eventually finding his calling and going from a man of the sword to a man of the cloth. But you just can't keep a good investigator down. And Brother Cadfile, through this anarchy, managed to find some clever little mysteries for him to solve. I am actually going to talk about the second book in the series, which I think is actually much funner than the first one. It takes place after King King Stephen, King Stephen has sacked the castle of Shrewsbury. However, someone managed to escape the siege, taking with them the entire treasure of the family and running away. King Stephen has attacked this particular castle, knowing that this family is loyal to Empress Maud. And so should the treasure slip through his fingers and into her hands, he would be at a severe disadvantage. In retaliation for the silence of all of the survivors refusing to say where the treasure has gone, Stephen hangs all of them. Every last survivor in the castle is hung on the castle walls. However, when the church intervenes asking for clemency to bury all of these bodies in a Christian burial, Catfile discovers that there are 95 bodies instead of 94. 
someone has committed a murder and cleverly hidden the body among all of the corpses. Cadfile must use all of his wits, all of his cunning, all of his political maneuvering to find out who has been murdered and why in a den full of vipers and thieves. This is the second book in the Chronicles of Brother Cadfile, One Corpse, Too Many. So I would heartily recommend this series. It's by Ellis Peters, who is actually Edith Mary Partridger, who is a self-taught scholar who writes with such beautiful attention to detail and like evocative of this particular period, even though she just taught herself. She never went to university. Um, She was born in 1913, served in the war and just decided, you know what? I'm very interested in monks, much like Fiona, and decided to write an entire award-winning series about them that is turned into a amazing TV series starring Sir David Jacobi, which has no right in being as good as it is for having been made in the late 80s. It is a total delight from start to finish. And the book series is wonderful as well. So if you are looking for a look into medieval monastic life, both nuns and monks, I can recommend no better than The Adventures of Brother Catfile. Thank you so much, Corrine. I'm super excited for that one and the TV series. I definitely love clergy detectives I think it's sort of like it has that like the same as you know the like woman detective where they're often underestimated and they can kind of like go about in ways that people don't notice them and I also wanted to note that that is the same time setting as pillars of the earth so that is that's kind of cool after reading that I would love to then get a different take on it um so we're going to move on to Mark now uh what what side of of the clergy have you got for us, Mark? Well, I'm just going to be changing up a little bit because mine is more on the nuns and sisters side of the spectrum. It's also set in the modern day, so it's also a very different time period. And the book that I chose was Agatha of Little Neon. We'll get to this little neon-colored house in a moment because that's where the name of the book comes from. This story follows the sort of travails and adventures of four sisters, Agatha, Mary Lucille, Teresa, and Frances. And based on the title, you can tell that Agatha is the most important of these four sisters as she's our narrator. She's the person whose story we're mostly learning about. She's sort of looking back on her life. She has left the sisterhood and she's now looking back on her time with with her three sisters, Mary Lucille, Teresa, and Frances. The book starts out in the little town of Lackawanna in Pennsylvania, as our four sisters are working at the local diocese at the orphanage, raising little young babies who don't have any mothers or anyone to look after them. So they're sort of taking on this sort of motherly, familial, warm, gentle, caring role. But one day this is upended because they find out that their local diocese is bankrupt, that their money is poorly handled by their leaders, Father Thaddeus and Father Art, who Father Art allegedly has has had as many as seven cosmetic surgeries on the church's dollar. So there's almost like a theme here of the sort of male leads of the church not being the most financially savvy or the most consistent in their preaching and their actual habits and manners. And we'll see this, this sort of comes up throughout the story is one of the reasons why Agatha sort of becomes slightly disillusioned with the church and the sisterhood how they can sort of tolerate these incompetent men essentially telling them what they need to be doing all the time. 
So after the diocese, they find out it's going bankrupt. Their beloved mother, Roberta, who they do love quite a lot. She's sort of like a motherly figure to them. She really is like that kind of warm, sort of caring uh, leader figure to these four sisters. She finds a way to get them reassigned to another diocese in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, which is another very strange name. I almost feel like this author chose these city names based on just how strange and bizarre and unknown they really are. But anyways, after having spent their last nine years together in Lackawanna, they get sent to Woonsocket, which is where they go to this little neon. It's It's essentially a transitional living house for people who have been in prison. They've maybe had issues with uh, substance use or they're homeless and things like that. So they're essentially taking on a kind of caretaker role at this house. And though it's officially known as St. Gertrude's Home for Transitional Living, everyone just refers to it as Little Neon because of that bright Mountain Dew colored paint job that they got for very little money because they don't have the money to afford a nicer shade of paint. So they got the cheapest kind of paint that they possibly could to paint the house. And because of this sort of Mountain Dew color, they affectionately refer to their residents as neons. Essentially, throughout this story, we got these little vignettes of their lives because the chapters themselves are only about three or four pages long on average. The book is about 260, 270 pages, but it's more than 80 chapters. So you sort of get like these little kind of snippets of their lives at different points, that their interactions with each other, their interactions with the the neons, the residents of the home. And through these sort of glimpses, we get, we get some ideas of what had brought them to the church. So for example, in Agatha's case, she always felt very adrift in her life. And the sort of her connections with the church was it sort of sense of certainty and connection and sort of familial feelings that she got from it. Others, another one of the sisters was fleeing an abusive relationship and sort of found in the church a place where she could stay. So in this story, we kind of get these little snippets of people's lives rather than like a big giant sort of like arc of like a murder or like big giant events that sort of transform someone's life immediately. It's more about these sort of kind of like little pieces of everyday life, these interactions, these sort of people that they meet, how that kind of impacts their lives in the long run. So I would say that it's sort of like through these interactions that Agatha sort of comes to wonder where if this church is the place that's for her or if she wants to go back out into the world to try and reestablish her life in a way that's still connected to the church. She's still very devoted to the church, but not necessarily in a uh, full-on devotion of her entire life as a sister. So it sort of has like that kind of uncertainty and doubt that sort of creeps into her life and how that kind of impacts her. So in that way, it's also very character-driven. It's not a huge like plot-driven. You're not going to get like these big giant, like I said, these big giant events that upend everything. It's much more a sort of subtle progression of throughout her time at uh, Little Neon with her sisters. So I would also say that it's a somewhat comedic story also. Like it doesn't sound like very, it's very funny what I've been saying so far, but it really is like these sort of like travails of not having like enough money to afford like fancy meals. So then they come up with these little pantry meals that of like walnut tacos and these bizarre like uh, little ways they find to try and like make ends meet and to get through their little meager budgets and they start leading like a local Bible study without really having like a theological background, sort of like muddling their way through trying to like reason through the Bible and sort of find messages to help people through their lives in this way. So it's almost like a, 
I guess you can almost call it a fish out of water. Sort of like they're, they're thrown out of their comfort zone, taking care of little young babies who don't talk back to them. And now they're sort of essentially in a much, much, much different area of the church's service. Overall, I was kind of uh, taken by Agatha as a narrator. So in very many ways, if you'd like a sort of character, introspective, uh, reflective kind of style of story, which I tend to like, I was very much interested in that aspect of the story. And if you're into that kind of narrative, I think you'll like this book as well. So that was Agatha of Little Neon. Thank you, Mark. <clears throat> that sounds delightful. Definitely speaking my language. I like that that kind of like the day to day, but then the the idiosyncrasies of like just this idea of a of a Mountain Dew colored dwelling is just so delightful. <laughs> okay, we're gonna go to Virginia next, and no pressure, but I'm really hoping that you were gonna talk about some nuns in space. You just ruin it. You just ruin my intro. Yes, so Fiona is right. Nuns are everywhere. They are in all kinds of stories, all kinds of genres. And Fiona, we could have made so many beautiful Venn diagrams today, even though you have no interest in the, the stuff that is in the middle, but there are so many different kinds because I could have talked about Cannibal Nuns in The Star Eater by Kirsten Hall. I could have talked about Nuns in a Weird Western in Nunslinger, which is a much better title, by Stark Holborn. And of course, like you said, I have decided to talk about Nuns in Space. And this is the first book in a series, and it is called Sisters of the Vast Black, and it's by Lena Ratha. And the book two just came out a couple months ago. So our space-faring nuns live on a ship called Our Lady of Impossible Constellations, and they belong to the Order of St. Rita. And they visit different colonies by request to do baptisms, to officiate marriages, or to administer last rites. And these sisters, when we first met them, they are having a bit of a debate, a theological debate. And the question for all of them is, should their ship be allowed to change its course, find a mate to fertilize its eggs, and make some ship babies. Yes, the ship in this world, many of them are kind of more like living organisms. They are not like they're not AI, so they're not like they don't, they're not sentient in that way, but they are more like I guess they would say like an animal. That's like sort of the closest analogy that the sisters are trying to come up with. And like animals, they need to be taken care of. They need to be kept, make healthy. And their ship is hoping to find a mate. So they have to decide whether they're going to let the ship do that or not. And through that, we get to meet all the different sisters. The convent is led by Reverend Mother. She has taken a vow of silence and she communicated in sign language. Why did she refuse to speak is a mystery that is going to unravel throughout the book. But it's a really major plot point that comes in play much later in the book. Reverend Mother knows that she is not quite herself these days. She is having early stages of dementia and she hopes that before she loses herself, she's able to make one confession. The signs that Reverend Mother is not doing so well did not go unnoticed by Sister Lucia. But Sister Lucia, even though she's the doctor on the ship, 
doesn't want to admit it. She's trying to deny it. She's just ignoring all the signs because she has a deep respect for Reverend Mother and she is just one of the kindest person and she doesn't know what to do. Like she's very worried if something happens to Reverend Mother, what is going to happen to all of them? Sister Faustina also noticed that Reverend Mother is not quite herself. Maybe that's why part of the reason why she decided to keep some of the messages to herself. Sister Faustina is in charge of all the communication coming to the ship and also going out. And they have just received a message from the church on earth. The church is saying that they're going to send a priest to them. And this priest is going to make sure that Everything is in order and making sure they are up to date with the latest doctrines and the church values. Sister Faustina, even though she's a nun, she does the bare minimum. She's not, her faith, not really strong at all. And in fact, Reverend Mother has let her join the order because she just needs to get out. She just needs a place to live. And that is kind of how she ended up joining, not because she feels a calling at all. So Sister Faustina is very suspicious of this. And they all also remember the war that has recently ended, where the colonies have rebelled and they have gone independent. And that earth and the central governance has been trying to crawl back all the land, crawl back all the you know, territories, because they believe that everything belongs to them, especially all the resources on all the colonies. So this priest coming on the ship is not going to be good because it sounds like they are just going to hoping to use religion to spread their propaganda. And so Sister Faustina think, well, you know, Things take long to travel in space. Maybe we'll just pretend we never get this message and then that will be fine. So while the priest is trying to get on board, someone is trying to get off the ship. And that is Sister Gemma. Sister Gemma is the biologist, like I said, because it's a living organism, the ship. So it needs taken care of. And so she's more like a biologist rather than like a mechanic. And in her spare time, she would try to do different experiments to try to hope to find cures for the different diseases that they come across um, when they visit all the different colonies. But Sister Jamma has started to have doubts about what she's doing, and she doesn't feel like this is her calling anymore, probably because at the last stop, she met a woman and she fell in love. They have kept up their correspondences, and she's trying to figure out what to do. She feels like She's no longer devoted to the cause of the sisters and that she should leave. But it's hard when these are people that you have lived with for quite some time. Like Mark's story, this is very much a story about all the characters that I've been telling you about. It is not an action-driven book at all. I would say other than the climax of the book, where you do see a little bit of action, it is all of the action happens within each of the characters, in the interactions with each other, in the relationships that these sisters have. And it's very much about their own struggle with their faith. Because this book explores a lot of that relationship between organized religion and personal faith, between like doctrine and sort of the interpretation of the doctrine. And the sisters are definitely more sort of on the side of doing good and helping rather than preaching. 
And despite the book raising a lot of questions about religion in general, it's done in a very respectful way, which I really appreciate. It's personal journey, coming to terms with what faith means to each of the, the sisters. Of course, there's also a lot of talk um, about sort of the church and the state. And I would say in the second book, it deals also a lot more on sort of the colonization aspect of the book, which I was a little concerned when I first picked the book up. I'm like, I didn't know where this is going to go because, you know, nuns going to visit colonies feels very much like a missionary. And I don't know where this is going, but it's nothing like that at all. It is very much maybe on the other side of things. And again, even that, like, it's done in a very sensitive way. Like, I, I really appreciate how the author, like, knows that this is like, there's no easy solutions because we're talking about human lives here. And, and there's that respect there um, in, in the book. And of course, the second book in the series, Sisters of the Forsaken Skies, also ties very nicely with next week's episode because it has got one of those in the book. And what is one of those? I guess you have to tune in and find out next week. So if you're interested in exploring these big ideas in the very character-driven story, check out Sisters in the Vast Black by Lena Rafa. Thank you so much, Virginia. <clears throat> that sounds amazing. Like, I'm like giddy with excitement hearing you talk about it. <laughs> All right. I actually have chosen a historical novel today that is set in the Middle Ages. And it is about a real nun who lived in the early Middle Ages, and her name is Clotilde. And she is known as a rebel nun, a warrior nun. So this is The Rebel Nun, a novel by Marge Charlier. So in Clotilde's monastery, there is a wonderful abbess who is fair and just and has always been a role model for Clotilde. However, after this abbess's passing, the priest comes in and overrides their ability to vote on a new abbess and installs a new abbess without any of their input, any of the nun's input. This is shocking to all of them, but is especially disappointing to Clotilde because she was expected to be voted to be the new abbess. Now, throughout the book, we, uh, we see it from Clotilde's perspective, and we're never quite sure how much this sort of like jealousy and frustration contributes to her actions. So... The new abbess is horrible. She hoards the the stores. Um, when each of the nuns enters the monastery, often their their families will give like a bit of a bride price. So they will give expensive fabric, stores of money and food uh, that are then stored up for the monastery to use to house and feed the nuns. Now, they don't live lavish lives, but there's an expectation that they'll eat well and be clothed, essentially. However, with this new abbess, she is hoarding everything. She is keeping a man in her room and yeah, <laughs> and she is awful to Clotilde and anyone who is a friend to Clotilde, essentially punishing her for her, her desire to actually be the abbess. So it starts out... Uh, is a small rebellion, a legitimate grievance 
that they take in appropriate channels to basically try to have this abbess at least reprimanded or overthrown. But the bishop sides with the abbess and says that they are all prideful uh, and they're complaining and is not his responsibility, essentially, to do anything to improve life in the cloister because they're nuns. They should put up with it. You know, life is hard. Suffer for Jesus. So they decide to take their concerns to the king. Now, this is a huge because it means that they are going to leave the cloister and that actually breaks their vows means they can potentially be excommunicated. However, Clotilde is optimistic that this is going to get results because the king is actually her uncle. She is a bastardess who was born to the king's brother's concubine. So she doesn't have legitimacy, but you know, she remembers sitting on her uncle's lap when, when she was younger. He definitely knows who she is and thinks that she can get a favorable response. The book follows this journey of the nuns. It focuses a lot on each of their characters, which was enjoyable. And it is all from Clotilde's perspective. It was interesting because it was very engaging and immersive uh, in the time. And I think that that's a big thing that the book has going for it is just the, the uniqueness of the, the time and the historical aspect. But we don't actually get a lot of description because it focuses really on Clotilde's feelings and the politics of the day around all of these, uh, this like, what is her family and this infighting. Basically, they're all afraid to be murdered. And that is actually why Clotilde and her cousin are at the cloister, because they will basically be murdered if they're not there, because they might sire a child who could potentially be a threat to the monarchy. So all of that sort of just politics was really interesting and immersive. It gave me a sense of this time that I knew nothing about. It also is really looking at the patriarchal nature of the church. And essentially in that time, the church ruled that women had no rights, had no place in the church. And so while this rebe rebellion is against the abbess, uh, it's also about this greater decision to completely devalue women in the church. And one of the things that I didn't like about Clotilde as a character is that she's not a very pious nun. And that is actually a characteristic that I love to read about. There's just something about like, like how different it is, uh, how that could be somebody's motivation. And the thing is, the author uses Clotilde's paganism as a juxtaposition to Christianity. So essentially, uh, looking at Clotilde's cultural religion of paganism, where women are revered, and then comparing it to her Christianity. And throughout the book, Clotilde struggles with these two things, and ultimately is not really a Christian believer. It had a lot of interesting background about the sort of like, it's, it's about the gulls and all of these like groups that I don't know anything about in this time. So it, it was very exciting to be immersed in in this language of a time and place that like really I know nothing about. And I really appreciate at the end, the author gives a full author's note on her um, historical accuracy. Uh, it was beautiful. I wish every historical fiction did that. She parses out what she drew from reality and what she had to fill in, which is just so fantastic for further reading. <laughs> 
overall, the book is was a little bit amateurish. Like I feel like it could have been a lot better, but just that quality of the immersion and the uniqueness of the setting was so good. I think it's absolutely worth a read, whether it's that you're interested in patriarchy in the Middle Ages, or like me, you just want to hear about the day-to-day lives of, of nuns. And in this case, nuns who decide to take up swords and become warriors against the patriarchy, which is like, you know, a pretty quality topic. So that is The Rebel Nun by Marge Charlier. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining me on this tangent. I thought that it might bring me some, like, peace to to really, like, delve into this interest that I have in nuns, but I actually feel, like, more agitated. Like, I need more. I gotta read all the nun books! So I'm very excited to have these new recommendations from my book friends. I will be reading each and every one of them. If you are in the habit of joining us weekly, we will see you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.